Your money can do more. Brought to you by Stanlib. Invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. The Taliban has announced a hardline interim government in Afghanistan. Top officials include the acting interior minister who is on the FBI's most wanted list with a 10 million dollar bounty on his head. But there are no top positions for women. Mexico's Supreme Court has declared laws penalizing abortion unconstitutional. Even as next door, the US state of Texas has legislated in the opposite direction on reproductive rights. For the first time, TikTok has surpassed YouTube in viewing time per user. Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro says only God will remove him from power. Dozens of prisoners have been released in Guinea following the recent coup that all been opponents of the ousted president Alpha Conde. And you thought our country was a noisy place? How can one begin to make sense of a complex and increasingly confusing world? Certainly the headlines don't always explain it. So how does a South African investor interested in gaining global growth exposure go offshore? Welcome to the third episode of Standlib's Your Money Can Do More podcast series. My name is Bongani Bingwa. As always, I'm pleased to tell you I'm with my co-pilot, Standlib's chief economist Kevin Lings. But also excitingly today, we are joined by Neil Robson, head of global equities at Columbia Threadneedle Investment. This is our third episode in a six-part podcast series that aims to promote the idea that there are many ways to invest. And so today's focus is on your money wants to go places. Let's dive straight in. Kevin, as I hinted in my introduction, the world can be a confusing, if not frightening place. But is keeping our money only in domestic markets a little like hiding it under the mattress? Hi, Bongani. It is actually because obviously South Africa is a very small portion of the world economy. It's actually less than half a percent. And if you just keep all of your money in South Africa, then you are essentially trapping it into a very limited array of investments. And so the general thinking is you need to have a certain portion of your money offshore. Obviously that portion will vary depending on the individual and circumstances, but typically that ends up being more or less around 30% as a kind of minimum. And some people are wanting to take more. And to me that makes sense. And the reason is that you then have the ability to expose your money to outside opportunities. Now, as you said in the intro, some Some of those outside opportunities are scary. So it's not as simple as, well, let me just invest offshore. You've got to be careful about where you're going. You've got to be careful about the jurisdictions, which countries are you exposed to, which particular assets. All of that is in a melting pot, right? But the principle is the key thing. Living in South Africa, the advice is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Try and spread that across the globe and then critically get somebody who knows what they're doing to manage that. And from our perspective, Neil Robson, who's based in the UK, does a brilliant job at it. Before I get to Neil, Kevin, looking elsewhere is also not necessarily about a lack of faith in South Africa. But as you say, it's about realizing there's a big, bold world out there. Yeah, that's right. I think when we mention this, people kind of view it as being unpatriotic. 
that somehow you're not believing in the country if you want to take some of your money offshore. And that's not the case at all. It's about just simply diversifying your risk. It's not to say that if you go offshore that your investment performance is going to be miraculously a hell of a lot better. It's more about limiting the risks that you're exposed to by simply being in one country with one currency, which is the rand. So by going offshore, you at least can then diversify into, well, I've got some dollar exposure, I've got some euro exposure, and I've got other assets that I'm exposed to. And it's that diversification of risk. Ultimately, South Africa is a portion of the the global economy. and, And there's no reason why we shouldn't utilize the full benefit of that exposure. We're able to do it in terms of exchange control. It's the norm internationally. It makes to me a hell of a lot of sense. And it's certainly not unpatriotic. Neil, let me bring you into the conversation. How integrated is South Africa in terms of its place in the world economy? I mean, yeah, South Africa is obviously very integrated in the economy, whether it be from your commodity exposures, international trade and so on, it's clearly there. You tend to drive around in Toyotas. You know, when you go into the office, Bangani, you, uh, you probably use Microsoft software, you maybe shop on Amazon, you're probably watching your kids watch stuff on YouTube, as you mentioned in your introduction. So, you know, it's a truly global place. And probably where it's been less global historically is that it's an investing patterns, as Kevin kind of mentioned. So, you know, if South Africa is less than 1%, why not try the other 99? Because if you think about it, what you're doing in your personal life, in, the, in your consumption patterns, is you clearly value these companies. Why not have them represented in your portfolio? Neil, the world is increasingly about ESG principles, environmental, social and corporate governance. How should the South African investor approach the offshore landscape? I mean, ESG gets an awful lot of um, headlines these days, but it's been around for a very, very long time. You want to know who's running the company, the governance aspect of it. You know, we've all got examples in history where governance has gone wrong in companies and you know, your investment has been unsafe. The same way that you want a company to have a good balance sheet, uh, not have too much debt on it. So environmental, social and governance is really about thinking about risks from each of those factors. I think what's changed, though, is that as we look at it now, you know, people care about what you know, clothes they wear, what products they're using and how it impacts the environment that trading shoe that you run around in, is that recyclable? If it's not recyclable, does it end up as plastic in the ocean? People start to care about that. Brands care about what you think about them. And therefore, the companies are changing their behavior radically. And it's also producing new growth potential. If you think about the whole trend towards decarbonizing the world, we're weaning ourselves off a fuel source and carbon-based fuels that basically generated all of our growth in the last 100 years. The amount of investment is beyond belief on that. And therefore, there are some really attractive opportunities which could benefit and someone will make money out of. So ESG is very much a risk control. We need to know about these factors in the same way we need to know about a company's balance sheet. But increasingly, it's what's driving demand for companies' products and therefore potential their growth rates in future. So it's something that we have embedded deeply into our investment process you know, if you think about it, if you take an oil company like BP, at some point in the future, it will no longer produce oil. It's going to shrink to the point where it no longer produces any oil whatsoever. Maybe that's 30, maybe it's 50 years. What is it going to do instead? 
And last year, famously, BP have changed its uh, capital allocation such that it's investing an awful lot more, not in new oil fields, but actually in alternative energy fields. So I think it really is really important to understand the ESG elements of any investment right now. Kevin, how do you begin to identify quality companies that are sustainable with unique value propositions? So that's a real art. It's no longer uh, simply just investing in the biggest company, the most profitable company, the brand that is known the best. Those types of ideas simply don't work. And what you're really ultimately looking for are companies that have a value proposition that has durability, that it's not simply going to fade away with a change in technology. So take a company like Kodak. At one stage, Kodak or Nokia was all about telephones and um, take cameras. And those dynamics have changed and you needed to recognize that. Uh, You mentioned TikTok on the rise and, and that dynamic affects the technology industry. So can you find companies that are going to continue to sell their product as the world around them changes? What is their base product? How durable is that? Are people going to keep demanding that? Is their brand strong enough? And worry perhaps a little bit less about the profitability or the valuation of the company. Perhaps the profitability will improve over time. Perhaps the valuation is not ideal right now. But if you take in a longer term investment horizon, those things will materialize as long as you've bought into a product that ultimately itself is durable. Neil, I'll pose the same question to you. Identifying quality companies that are sustainable, but with a unique value proposition. In your introduction, you talked about all these events around the world and the risks that are out there. Uh, We've talked about how kind of decarbonization and big trends like that are actually changing so much in the world. How do we actually possibly make deliberate statements about future if everything is up in pure upheaval? And I think the best way of doing that is actually to attach to businesses that have some competitive advantage, some businesses that produce something that people want, produce something which actually normally is driven by innovation, which might give them a competitive advantage. You mentioned YouTube. You know, YouTube is a great franchise. TikTok is now accelerating towards it, but it's still going to be a phenomenally valuable franchise. It's where companies will want to advertise. Will that be true in 10 years' time, in 50 years' time? Tougher to predict, but it's a very strong cash flow generating business. And if Google continue to reinvest in it, they'll continue to stay ahead of the pack. So what you want to do is you want to find quality businesses whether they be technology businesses, whether they be healthcare, could be a utility business, who have the ability to grow, but also make very predictable profitability. And I think it's that combination of finding that business that can compound out returns over not just one year, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years and staying with it as it grows. That's how your your money is going to grow with that company. Are we looking for a business that's already established, Kevin, or is it also important to bet on the next new disruptor, the next new kid on the block? So that's always sexy to have a look at uh, up-and-coming companies and companies that may well suddenly emerge and overtake other competitors and become kind of the darling for a while. But, you know, experience has taught us that that's difficult to evaluate clearly because while something might seem dynamic right now, is it able to take that and translate it into bottom line earnings and therefore a value generator. And and that's far from guaranteed. 
So there's a tendency to to try find that balance, to look at, yes, technology is a vital area and it's an area of very valuable investments, but you've got to be clear about what is this technology really offering and can you see that technology working over the longer term or is it simply going to fade out within 12 or 18 months? And while there's money to be made in the very short term, it's typically not the type of investment you want to put into a longer term portfolio. So to me, you've got to prove over time that you can generate a decent bottom line return. Neil, is that uh, an approach you share? If somebody walks into your office and they say they're the next Google, do you take them at their word or do you look for something more? I think we, um, we, we're looking for something more. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you think about solar panels, solar energy, there's an awful lot, you know, they've grown tremendously or flat screen TVs. We all have flat screen TVs on our walls now. They've been amazing gross areas. Not many people have made any money out of them because there was very little competitive advantage to produce one flat screen TV, the same technology is used by another company, cost competition, and as a result, price goes down and no one really makes money out of it. So it's not enough just to identify the trend. You need to identify a company that is capable of making money out of the trend. And to do that, you need to be a quality business. You need to have this sort of competitive advantage. So that would be the first point. Thereafter, what you're doing is trying to stay with that over a long period of time. Getting in too early can sometimes involve a great deal of risk. You know, if you think about now, you think about Google, you think about Facebook. Back in 2000, neither of those companies were quoted. And yet those were the great investments to be made. I think you can wait for them to start to prove their franchise and still make an awful lot of money, maybe after investing after watching it for two or three years. Facebook in the portfolio, we actually invested it after three quarters after it had been on the market. And we've made an awful lot of money. If you go back to when we first invested in Google back in 2005, and we've held it ever since, you know, Google at that point was a hugely expensive stock. It was on 45 times revenues, but it's grown its business at 24% compound. We've made a huge amount of that money in the last 10 years. So you can wait to prove businesses to prove themselves. Uh, I think the other thing is we, we get very obsessed with technology and new things. Sometimes old technology is brilliant. We have an investment in the portfolio of Union Pacific, the railroad in the US. Railroads might not sound new, exciting, or at all sexy, but one thing we will guarantee is no one's going to build another one. So you have effectively a quasi-monopoly type position of a business that grows pretty much in line with GDP as more and more volume goes onto the rails. It's a freight business with pricing power because no one is going to build another railway. And as a result, this is a business that is compounding out revenues of about 6-7% per annum and a profitability of north of 10%. You know, stay with that business over the long term. I don't see much that's going to disrupt rail transport in the next 10-15 years. Just stay with it. Coming up later in this podcast. You know, so far this year, this, the U.S. stock market is up over 20%. You don't want to miss out on that. If you're sitting in South Africa, how does it make you feel that the U.S. stock market is up 20% and you enjoyed none of that benefit? Someone very close to you has been keeping a secret from you. Your money has been dreaming of a more global lifestyle. Why not set your money free to see what it's really capable of when it's free to access the best global opportunities? Your money can do more with Stanlib's offshore funds. Invest to earn more returns at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.
So we're talking about opportunities, but let's also talk about risks. How different uh, must the South African investor approach global risks, Neil? Obviously, anything that you invest in to make money pretty much has a risk the moment you take it out of your bank balance. So therefore, you need to know how to manage risks. First thing, you need as much knowledge as possible. I think hiring an external manager like ourselves, and there are others around there, but I think it really helps get you over that knowledge gap. Once you actually have that knowledge, uh, in terms of dealing with the risks, I think you need to manage risk very actively. You need to run a diversified portfolio. I think going back to what we mentioned in the earlier question of investing in quality businesses, over time they work and just staying with them over the time and watching them compound. I think that is a very good strategy for dealing with international. And I think the final thing is, is just don't take inordinate risks. I mean, South Africa, if you think about the risks in South Africa, it's, uh, you know, there are risks on currency. I listened to one of Kevin's podcasts. Uh, he talked about, you know, 30% of the bond market, which is held by foreigners. What happens if they don't turn up? That's the sort of risk you have. It's a, it's a relatively high-risk economy. If your listeners are going to put money abroad, I can suggest they probably don't go to Russia or Turkey or perhaps give Argentina a miss. Maybe just look at the nice, safe stuff that is easy to predict. Google doing well, Facebook doing well, whether it's MasterCard and payments, those are nice, predictable, diversified global businesses I think that's the type of business that you should be looking at. Kevin, how does the South African investor approach the global space with regards to risk? So I agree with what Neil's saying. In South Africa, we have a fairly high level of risk relative, relative to many other jurisdictions. South Africa is a open economy. It's a small emerging market. We've got quite a messy environment. If you think about the politics are messy, the economic performance, the policy environment, all of that sets up for a high degree of uncertainty. So when the South African investor goes offshore, what they don't want to do is compound that risk by going into an equally risky jurisdiction. So as Neil said, don't go into Turkey. Turkey is also equally a very risky environment. It's very volatile. Its uh, position in the world makes it um, highly unpredictable. And I could say that for many other emerging markets. So the, the thought process is go into countries that represent something else. So let's say we go into Europe where it's much more stable. Yes, it's not exciting growth where perhaps on the average you're getting maybe 2% growth, but it gives you something else. And it's that stability and predictability of earnings and returns. And you could say the same about some of the US companies. And there's a whole range of multinational companies that we invest in, right? Companies that may well be based in the United States, but literally operate globally like Google. And so for us, it's about trying to just dampen down some of the noise, dampen down some of the risk and just be a little bit more certain about what you're investing in. And it turns out that when you do that and you combine it with your South African assets, you actually get a very good outcome because South African assets are giving you the risk and you have to do that because you live here to some extent. But then by diversifying outside, you are dampening down of some of that. You've got some predictability and the combination is actually very good. So why then, Kevin, uh, is it so many private players in South Africa are sitting on oodles and oodles of cash, not doing much with it here, but also not taking it offshore? So I think part of it is just simply the knowledge base. I think it's it becomes quite daunting to say, well, I'm going to invest offshore. And, and immediately you're struck by the 
the logistics of that. How do I invest offshore? How do I get my money? Who do I invest with? Do I need to go through exchange control regulation? Do I have to have a tax clearance? All of those things can become quite daunting. It's the same argument, unfortunately, why people just keep putting their money in the bank, get a very low return, yet they could put their money in in something that would give them a significantly better return for a marginal increase in risk. And part of that is just access and an ability to understand it. The other element of it is that you kind of procrastinate around these things a lot. In other words, you've got a pool of funds that you've come into, you've retired, something's happened and you've got some access to funds. And you keep saying to yourself, yes, I must look at it. I'm going to look at it. And the funds and the balances are building up and you promise yourself you're going to look at it, but you just don't. And it's that procrastination which undermines this. And I think that the answer, therefore, is to simply go to an investment house like a Stanlib and there's many others in South Africa and say to them, I've got this pool of money. I want a better balance in terms of investments. Help me to do this. And, and there are a lot of experts that will do it. And you'll find that it's actually very easy and fairly cost effective. Neil, it's a similar question to you. How do we get South Africans then to think about that 99% of the rest of the world? I, I think the easy way is going back to that earlier analogy, which is just think what you actually use on a day-to-day basis. I'm sure you all drink South African red wine, but um, apart from that, many of the goods and services that you're using are actually um, multinational in origin. If you're doing that with your consumption pattern, why not do it with your investments as well? So I, I think that's a really good motivation. I think the other motivation is you know that diversification one that Kevin talked about at the beginning, and just that opportunity. You know, there are some great businesses, some great investment trends that are just not represented in the South African stock market. And you should have exposure to them, whether that be cloud computing, whether that be innovative uh, medical procedures, um, whether that be some new industrial techniques, anything like that might not well be represented in South Africa. But even things that you think you have in South Africa are phenomenal, like commodities exposure. Is it right to invest in the commodities companies or would you be better in investing in one of the companies that produces the mining equipment? Most of those tend to be international. It's Atlas Copco, it's Sandvik, it's Caterpillar and Komatsu. So it just broadens your choice of investments. And if you broaden the choice, you broaden the universe, you're more likely to get a higher return or perhaps a a better risk-controlled return. What do you say to the South African investor, Neil, who sees the opportunities as you've you've outlined them, but is still a little bit daunted by all the hurdles that Kevin was mentioning, whether it's the regulations or the different sets of rules that may apply, who's a little nervous to dip their toes into the water, as it were. I'm not an expert on the South African regulation. I'll leave that to Kevin and his team. But I think it's worthwhile just persevering, just starting out. You know, like we do with many of our investments, it's a matter of, you know, sometimes just watching for a while, thinking about things, maybe doing it in a small way initially. And the once you've made that step, life becomes easier. And you tend to think about it live a little bit more. And people, you know, I always get asked, well, what if the RAND depreciates? And it may do in the next 12 months. It could do that. But actually think about your time horizons. Think out five, 10 years. What am I saving this money for? Why am I investing? Am I investing for my retirement? Is that 20 years away? If those are the sorts of things you're thinking about, what you want to do is attach to great businesses and watch them compound over time and build your wealth with them. 
Whether the RAND goes up in the next six months or not, probably in the medium term, indifferent. So I would encourage people to start you know, now, get over those technical hurdles. I'm sure the guys at Standard will be more than helpful for you. And then start to think about things. Kevin, can you give our listeners a sense of what opportunities, what advantages your partnership with Columbia presents the investor? We've linked up with Columbia Threadneedle for quite some time. So we've partnered with them over a longer period of time and they've managed a significant portion of our offshore investments. And obviously their investment return has been nothing short of spectacular. The two key funds, if I can mention, the one is called the Standlib Global Equity Fund and the other one's called the Standlib Global Balanced Funds. And both of those funds have done exceptionally well. And Neil is involved in managing both of them. And there's no doubt when you listen to Neil about his passion and expertise when it comes to uh, managing offshore funds. Now, that partnership for us, you could say, well, why don't you try and manage that money in South Africa? Why don't you sit and simply make that decision on whether to invest in Nestle or invest in MasterCard or invest in Google? Why don't you decide here? And what we've realized over time is that our expertise is a South African market. We've grown up with those companies. We understand them well. And we don't have the level of competitiveness when it comes to managing money internationally. And so the best way for the client is simply to partner with an expert. And in this case, Columbia Threadneedle. And as Neil said, you've got 450 investment professionals. That's a huge team that are looking at a, at a global landscape. So does it work? Well, yes, because, you know, I was looking at their funds. These are funds that have generated double digit returns on average for 10 years. This is not, oh, the fund did well for one year and it got a double digit growth. This is funds that have generated very high returns, mid double digits for 10 years. And some of that, yes, does relate to the exchange rate, right? So if the exchange rate's weakening, you are getting that benefit. But some of it just relates to the outright performance. And and I was looking, you know, so far this year, this, the US stock market is up over 20%. You don't want to miss out on that. If you're sitting in South Africa, how does it make you feel that the US stock market market is up 20% and you enjoyed none of that benefit. And it's quite easy to to participate in that. And I think that the link up with Columbia Threadneedle allows you to do that and allows you to do that better than the average. So to me, it's been a phenomenal success story. So, Neil, it's not just the 450 investment professionals across different markets and geographies. It is also that small matter of what? 593 billion US dollars worth of assets that you manage. It should be an offer that's hard to refuse. Yeah. What does it mean? Why is scale important? I think what it means is it buys us access. You know, we actually can afford the resources, those 450 people. Companies want to come and talk to us. So our flow of knowledge from companies is tremendous. Think of a South African example. You, you guys have got Capitec, which is a great low-cost bank, gaining huge amounts of market share, being innovative, being price competitive. But you mentioned Capitec. It's great in a South African context. But I can think of First Republic in the US. I can think of HDFC Bank in India, Bank Rakyat in Indonesia. And I'd have people around the world who are following those. And they all kind of look a little bit like Capitec as they are growing far faster than their domestic markets because they have a great competitive 
position. Having people around the world who have that knowledge and can bring that together and start to compare those investments, that's how you start to add real value to clients over time. Kevin, the same question to you. $593 billion worth of assets, this worldwide network of professionals in different markets, different geographies. It should be an offer that's hard to refuse. Look, I think it is. I think, as Neil said, it, the access is phenomenal that uh, Columbia Threadneedle has. It, it has offices around the world. It's not as if it's just based in the UK. The other critical thing, which we, we just can't do logistically, is they can meet directly with a lot of these big companies. We just can't meet with them. The travel expense would just be enormous. And so that hands-on approach, uh, that ability to engage, and also the ability for and willingness for companies to come and meet with you is a critical uh, divider. If you're sitting in South Africa, is a foreign company going to make the effort to travel here and engage with you because you perhaps might invest in them? The answer is absolutely not. And so we know that from investing in our local mining companies, investing in our local banks, having that face-to-face engagement and discussing with management and developing a relationship with management and understanding how they think is absolutely critical to this. And when you've got that sort of reach that Columbia Threadneedle has, then you have access. And and I think that uh, allows you to excel. Now, you could argue that, yes, I mean, it, it creates a massive competitive advantage for them and other players perhaps don't have that same advantage, but that's the nature of the game. And, and if we in South Africa, what we want to do is literally bring the best to the South African market to offer the South African client the best of what you can invest in internationally. And through Stanlib, of course, uh, that is the gateway. That is the place to start. So that's right. So our partnership uh, with Columbia Threadneedle then says that we are the conduit for those investments in South Africa. And so if you're interested, the the mechanism is simply to approach Stanlib and go through Stanlib and, and then get access to Columbia Threadneedle. And that is fairly seamless. In fact, you won't really even be aware of it. But in the background, that's effectively what's happening. Your money does want to go places. That is then the third episode of our podcast series, Your Money Can Do More. My great, great thanks uh, to Neil Robson, the head of global equities at Columbia Thread Needle Investments, and of course, my co-pilot, Standup's chief economist, Kevin Links. Certainty, more returns, and more impact. Standard, imagine more. Standard Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.